0: Good morning, Stonebridge. We're going to continue to work through the book of Judges. We're going to finish up this week. So, if you want to turn to Judges chapter 19, while you're turning there, I want to share some U.S. news headlines just from scanning three major news sites this week. Man charged with threatening to kill Boston Globe employees. Woman in deadly crash had brakes cut for crack pipe. I don't even want to know what that means. Uh, Meth marijuana sold from ice cream truck in Long Beach. Whoa. Florida shooting. Video gamer kills two at a tournament. You see, life without the king leads to complete chaos. We see it in the news headlines all the time, and we see it in the end of Judges. This section is bookended by this one phrase and it says in those days when there was no king in Israel. That's chapter 19 verse 1 and chapter 21 verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I entitled this message Chaos. Because that's what it is just complete chaos so just a warning to families with with children that are here this morning this text itself just by reading the scripture is graphic is disturbing and perhaps the darkest chapters in the Bible so I'm going to state the major form of chaos and then I'm going to read about it so really pay close attention to the scripture as I read it as I'm just going to be letting scripture speak for itself So I'll read the parts that highlight that major form of chaos. So the first form of chaos, life without the king, leads to sexual chaos. Pick up in chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, and there was no king in Israel, a Levite, staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, acquired a woman from Bethlehem and Judah as his concubine. She was unfaithful to him and left him for her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. She was there for four months. And then chapter 19, verse 3 through 19, I'll just summarize. So this Levite, he goes to get his concubine from her dad, because remember, she just ran away. It's chaotic. And and so he goes, and this Levite and his concubine's dad have this awkward Minnesota goodbye. And if you don't know what a Minnesota goodbye is type it into YouTube, and there's some great videos describing that, right? But they're just kind of like, hey, you know, it's it's lunch. Why don't you stay for lunch before you leave? And then lunch, they, stay, they have lunch. They stay for a while, have dessert. And they're like, hey, you know, you might as well stay for supper. And then it's like, well, it's supper. You might as well just stay the night. And they just keep doing this. And then so finally they leave after the awkward minutes of a goodbye. And the Levite... And the concubine end up in this town called Gibeah in Benjamin. And this old man invites them in to stay at his house for the night. So that brings us to chapter 19, verse 20. Nineteen twenty. Welcome, said the old man. I'll take care of everything you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he brought him to his house and fed the donkeys. Then they washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went out and said to him, Please don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't commit this horrible outrage. Here, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine now. Abuse them and do whatever you want to them. But don't commit this outrage, this outrageous thing against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, the, the, the Levite, seized his concubine and took her outside to them. They raped her and abused her all night until morning. At daybreak, they let her go. Early that morning, the woman made her way back. And as it was getting light, she collapsed at the doorway of the man's house where her master was. When her master got up in the morning, opened the doors of the house, and went out to leave on his journey, there was the woman, his concubine, collapsed near the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. Get up, he told her. Let's go. But there was no response. So the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he entered his house, he picked up a knife took hold of his concubine, cut her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and then sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened, or has been since the day of the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt until now. Think it over, discuss it, speak up. See, life without the king leads to sexual chaos, and we see this. All over here. There's just really no floor to the sexual disaster and chaos that's happening. And you and I both know that today, life without King Jesus, the King, leads to sexual chaos as well, right? Sexual chaos breaks out when people, especially men, reject Jesus' rule in their life. Just look at the porn industry. Look at sex trade. Look at the, our hookup culture. All of these things and more. Distort God's good gift of sex and rewrite his good rules. People say, you know what? I'll do sex on my own terms. I'll do what's right in my own eyes and lives. Families, nations are left in shambles. Unfortunately, I don't need to elaborate, Right? Everybody, everybody feels the chaotic, tragic effects of sexual chaos. Second form of chaos we see is relational chaos. Life without the king leads to relational chaos. And that's chapter 20. So, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, here's what happens essentially the leaders of Israel all get together. And the Levite tells him his story of what happened and how these men at Gibeah did this horrible thing to his concubine and makes himself sound great when the Levite was just as much at fault, right? The Levite put his concubine forward and said, Hey, no, don't take her, right? But anyway, he paints himself in a good light and goes, Look at these men in Gibeah, they're all evil. So they all decide to go to Gibeah, this town, to punish them and to kill those wicked men. So That brings us to chapter 20, verse 11. It says, So all the men of Israel gathered united against the city. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this evil act that is happening among you? Hand over the wicked men in Gibeah, so we can put them to death and eradicate evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. Instead, the Benjaminites gathered together from their cities to." to Gibeah to go out and fight against the Israelites. Relational chaos. See, these Benjaminites protect these horrible men of Gibeah, and it produces civil war in Israel, all because these Benjaminites refused to call evil what was evil. Protecting these evil dudes. And so then in chapter 20, verse 17, it says, The Israelites, apart from Benjamin, mobilized 400,000 armed men, everyone an experienced warrior. They set out, went to Bethel, and inquired of God. The Israelites asked, Who is to go first to fight for us against the Benjaminites? And the Lord answered, Judah will be first. In the morning, the Israelites set out and camped near Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin and took their battle positions against Gibeah. The Benjaminites came out of Gibeah and slaughtered 22,000 men of Israel on the field that day. But the Israelite troops rallied and again took their battle positions in the same place where they positioned themselves on the first day. They went up, wept wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of him, Should we again attack our brothers, the Benjaminites? The Lord answered, Fight against them. On the second day, the Israelites advanced against the Benjaminites. That same day, the Benjaminites came out from Gibeah to meet them and slaughtered an additional 18,000 Israelites on the field. All were armed. Verse 26, the whole Israelite army went to Bethel, where they wept and sat before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. Then the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there, and Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, was serving before it. The Israelites asked, Should we again fight against our brothers, the Benjaminites, or should we stop? The Lord answered, Fight, because I will hand them over to you tomorrow. So Israel set up an ambush around Gibeah. Jump down to verse 35. The Lord defeated Benjamin in the presence of Israel, and on that day the Israelites slaughtered 25,100 men of Benjamin. All were armed. Now, notice in this section, this is the only time that God's involved in these chapters. And the first question the Israelites ask of God they say, Should we go to war against our brothers? Should we go to war against your people and have civil war? No, that isn't the first question they ask. That's the first question that they should have asked. Instead, they say, They just assume, yeah, we should definitely go to war against their brothers. We should definitely have civil war. Instead, they ask, who should go first? And I think God's just like, well, Judah. (laughs) Send Judah first. And it's interesting that they come to God in verse 18, and they inquire of God, and they call him God. They call him, in Hebrew, Judges was written Originally in Hebrew, the word for God there is Elohim. And that's the Hebrew impersonal name for God. The impersonal name. That's what the pagans used to call God, God. But God responds in a personal way. He's addressed as Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh is the Hebrew word. That's the personal, covenantal name for God. That's the God that answers. See, clearly God is just, the Israelites fall back. He's not their king, but God surprisingly, in his grace, still answers them because he is their father, and they are his children, and he knows them personally, even though they don't know him. And don't honor him as king. And it takes three times. And several lives later. For victory. Even though God was involved. Why? Why did it take three times. For victory to happen. And all of those lives. Well. Because there was no repentance. The Israelites had no change of heart. They were just crying because they lost. They lost in battle. They were desperate for help. They're not desperately wanting God as their king. They're not desperately wanting to know God and be in relationship with him. No, they just wanted help. But another question is, why did God give Israel victory over their own tribe, Benjamin? Benjamin? Why did he allow there to be victory and even enable it to happen? Well, it's judgment. See, God even uses the messed up decisions of his people to bring judgment, consequences. Because remember, the Benjaminites were backing these evil men of Gibeah. So God was judging them, even through this chaos. So let's keep reading. We'll see more chaos. Chapter 20, verse 46. All the Benjaminites who died that day were 25,000 armed men. All were warriors, but 600 men escaped into the wilderness to rim and rock and stayed there four months. Remember that, 600 men left of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 48, the men of Israel turned back against the other Benjaminites and killed them with their swords. The entire city, the animals, everything that remained. They also burned all the cities that remained. The men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, none of us will give his daughter to a Benjaminite in marriage. So the people went to Bethel and sat there before God until evening. They wept loudly and bitterly and cried out, Why, Lord God of Israel, has it occurred that one tribe is missing in Israel today? The next day the people got up early, built an altar there, and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. The Israelites asked, Who of all the tribes of Israel didn't come to the Lord with the assembly? For a great oath had been taken that anyone who had not come to the Lord at Mizpah, would certainly be put to death. But the Israelites had compassion on their brothers, the Benjaminites, and said, Today a tribe has been cut off from Israel. Do you see the chaos happening here? As if destroying everyone but 600 Benjaminites wasn't enough, they now, in 21 verse 1, they deny these men their daughters as wives. And then they weep. It's so ironic, cruelly ironic. They weep and ask God, why did this happen? Why are our brothers dead? Well, wait a minute, Israel. Didn't you destroy them? Didn't you deny them your daughters? And now you're blaming God for what's happened? And guess what? God is silent. They cry out to God and blame God for the bloodshed that they committed. And God is silent, and that's the worst form of judgment, is God's silence. Because we absolutely need Him. I mean, I've seen some whacked up family dysfunction. I'm sure many of you have as well, right? Joey and I were sharing some stories. Joey, you'll have to you'll have to ask me this week. I have some more stories that I thought of later. But um, right, everyone has like that one Thanksgiving or that one reunion that we still talk about where this crazy thing happened, right? But what the heck is real? You just killed thousands and thousands of your own people, and today. It's not that different, right? Life without King Jesus leads to relational chaos as well. I mean, the U.S. divorce rate, according to, depending on what source you look at, is 40 to 50%, even among Christians. It's common for parents and their grown children to not even be on speaking terms. Friendships are shattered right and left because people who are hurt are unwilling to forgive people. Think about how relationally chaotic your life is. I I think about how relationally chaotic my life often is. And how relationally chaotic life among believers and people in the church often is. But subtract King Jesus, then it just becomes complete chaos. See, life without the king leads to relational chaos. And there really is no floor to the relational mess. And the third and final form of chaos we see in this section is that life without the king leads to oppression of the weak. Pick up where we left off. Left off, 21 verse 7. What should we do about wives for the survivors? We've sworn to the Lord not to give them any of our daughters as wives. They asked which city among the tribes of Israel didn't come to the Lord at Mizpah turned out that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp and the assembly. When the roll was called, no men were there from the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. The congregation sent 12,000 brave warriors there and commanded them, Go and kill the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the sword, including women and dependents. This is what you should do. Completely destroy every male as well as every woman who has gone to bed with a man. They found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not gone to bed with a man. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, to the land of Canaan. The whole congregation sent a message of peace to the Benjaminites, who were at Rimmon Rock. Remember, there were 600 there. Benjamin returned at that time, and Israel gave them the women who had been kept alive from Jabesh Gilead. But there was not enough for them. The people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made this gap in the tribes of Israel. The elders of the congregation said, What should we do about wives for those who are left, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? They said there must be heirs for the survivors of Benjamin so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. But we can't give them our daughters as wives, for the Israelites had sworn anyone who gives a wife to a Benjaminite is cursed. They also said, look, there's an annual festival to the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, east of the highway, that goes up from Bethel to Shechem in the south of Labona. Great, great. They're going to go to this, this festival to the Lord and work out a solution. So things are going to get better, Right. Wrong. Verse 20. Then they commanded the Benjaminites, go and hide in the vineyards. Watch. And when you see the young women of Shiloh come out to perform the dances, the dancing for God, each of you leave the vineyards and catch a wife for yourself from the young women of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers come to us in protest, we will tell them, show favor to them since we did not get enough wives for each of them in battle. You didn't actually give the women to them, so you're not guilty of breaking your oath. The Benjaminites did this and took the number of women they needed from the dancers they caught. They went back to their own inheritance, rebuilt their cities, and lived in them. At that time, each of the Israelites returned from there to his own tribe and family. each returned from there to his own inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did Whatever seemed right to him. Oppression of the weak. There's oppression of these there's oppression and, and the senseless slaughter of everyone in this town, Jabesh Gilead. Men, women, did you catch it in their dependents? Children being killed, except for 400 virgins. I mean, sure, Jabeth Gilead didn't join the Civil War, but but think about it. Jabez Gilead didn't join the civil war. This town may have been the only pure, righteous town in the whole nation at this time. Because they didn't want to fight their own brothers and sisters. And they're being oppressed for it. Wiped out. We see the oppression and stealing of 400 virgins, forced to be the wives of these Benjaminites. These women are treated like pawns and objects, and then it continues, right? Because there's 600 Benjaminites left, so we gotta—how are we gonna get wives for the other 200? So they send them to Shiloh, where they're worshiping God, and steal wives. Again, women treated like pawns, women treated like objects. And it's interesting in the book of Judges, the spiritual state of Israel is measured by how women are treated. I mean, recall with me, chapters 4 and 5, Deborah is the leader in Israel. A woman, the leader. Jael is used by God, a woman used greatly by God and praised for it. But then by chapter 11, Jephthah's daughter is sacrificed. In chapter 16, Samson just sleeps with prostitutes and random women and treats them like objects. In chapter 19, a concubine is repeatedly raped, abused, killed and dismembered. And by chapter 21, 600 women are stolen like property for wives. See, the less women were valued, the more God withdrew. Women were created in God's image, and they are of infinite value to God. God hates oppression of the weak. God hates oppression of women, of the helpless, of the defenseless. As a man, I just want to apologize to any woman here that's been mistreated or undervalued. That is not God's heart. It is a result of men living life without The king. And today, life without King Jesus leads to oppression of the weak, right? People are treated differently simply because of their race or their gender or their financial status. Talk about oppression of the weak, just consider abortion. See, everyone was created in God's image. Everyone has infinite value to God. Everyone should be treated with infinite value by us, especially by us who are following Jesus. Gay, straight, male, female, rich, poor, black, white, all created in the image of God, all deserving infinite value and equal treatment. See, there really is no floor to the depravity of man here. Life without the king leads to oppression of the weak. So here we are. The end of Judges, and life without the king is complete chaos. Where's God at the end of Judges? I'll tell you where he's at. The very next page is the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is full of sexual and relational restoration. And and the weak are cared for in the book of Ruth. And we even see that in the line of Ruth comes Jesus, the Savior. See, God is at work. This is at the same time period as the judges. Go read that. That's where hope is found. God was at work, but he was at work where, where people were honoring him as king. See, God is always pouring out his grace, restoration, and hope, but he does it on those who honor him as king. Even in the darkest times in history, there were people honoring him as king, and that's where God's at. But even that's not the end of the story for us. Ruth is not the end of the story for us today. Because you see, life with King Jesus is complete. Life without King Jesus leads to complete chaos, but life with King Jesus is complete. So if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. You got guys like Noah, Abraham, Moses, They did incredible things for God. And sure, Abraham played his wife off as his sister. But for the most part, he trusted God, right? And he was the father, Father Abraham of Israel. And sure, Moses murdered a dude. But he ended up saving the whole nation from slavery in Egypt. But then we get to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Read this with me. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Wait, what? This is the hall of faith. Did did the author of Hebrews get this wrong? I mean, Gideon was an insecure dude who led his whole family into idolatry at the end of his life. Barak was a wimp who wouldn't go into war without Deborah. Deborah should be in here. She was the hero. Samson compromised right and left and disobeyed God at every turn. Jephthah sacrificed his daughter and killed 42,000 of his fellow Israelites out of anger. Did you mess up, author of Hebrews? Did you mess up God? No. This was on purpose. You see, all of these broken saviors, even Jephthah, were used by God. But all of them fell short. And that point is that it points us to the Savior, to the King Jesus, right? And this is me, this is you. I'm way more like the Israelites in Judges 19 to 21 than I could ever care to admit. Naturally, I wanna do what's right in my own eyes. I wanna make me the King, right? And I've got this picture here of this guy mowing his lawn with a tornado right behind him, okay? And there's debate whether this photo is real or not, but um, the news story was put out by BBC, and I trust the British, so uh, it's got to be real. But but I think that's a great picture of what's going on, and a great picture of what's going on in my life often, right? I naturally want to just do life with me as the king. Like, I'm the king. everything's fine when really it's complete chaos. I've got it all figured out. I'm mowing along. Everything's great. When it's actually not at all. See, I'm naturally broken and sinful. And even on my best day, I'm just a broken savior. And on my worst day, I'm like the guys and judges in desperate need of a real savior, a real king. And that leads us to Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we also have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance in the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you need sexual healing, restoration, or recalibrating this morning, keep your eyes on the king. Right? It says here, keep your eyes, keeping our eyes on Jesus. He's the author. He's the perfecter of your faith. Do you need relational healing, restoration, Recalibrating? Keep your eyes on the king. You have a hard time standing up for and caring for the weak? Keep your eyes on the king. Maybe you're the one being oppressed. Keep your eyes on the king. That's how we walk forward. So here's some recent news headlines around Stonebridge that you'll never see in the media. Life with King Jesus leads to sexual restoration and beauty. We see this in one of our missionaries, Marcus Phi, in Thailand. Him and his wife run this pregnancy center that brings hope and healing for women instead of abortion. They help protect mothers and babies, and all the while sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with them, it tells them about God's good plan for sex. Second news headline, life with King Jesus leads to relational restoration and peace. Our connection group leaders here, our youth leaders here, are constantly, consistently bringing relational restoration and peace, helping people connect with Christ at the center, helping bring joy, Jesus. They're on the front lines bringing relational restoration. Third headline, Life with King Jesus leads to caring for and standing up for the weak. Our We Heart Boon campaign here under Joey's leadership that's blessed teachers and underprivileged students and the food shelf here in town. What will your life story be Will it be this? In those days, there was no king in their life. They just did what was right in their own eyes. They were were the king, and their life was complete chaos. Or will it be this? In those days, Jesus was the king in their life. And they did what was right in Jesus' eyes, and Jesus was their king, and their life was complete. Let's pray. God, I pray That you would help people here this morning turn to you, Jesus, and make you the king in their lives. And because of that, you would bring sexual healing and restoration, relational healing and restoration. And, And those who are being oppressed would find hope. And you would use them to help bring hope and care for the weak. Jesus, thank you the story doesn't end at the end of Judges. Thank you for the hope we have in you, Jesus. Pray this in your powerful name. Amen.